as we have been moving through the promises of the Old Testament, looking toward the coming of the Messiah, we've looked at uh, a lot of qualities, we've looked at a lot of tasks, a lot of roles that he would fulfill, so forth. Today I want to look at a name. I want to look at the name that was given that most um, directly describes his nature. Now, interestingly, it's not a name that, as far as we can tell, was ever actually used for him, um, called directly to him, uh, but it is applied to him, and uh, it is promised concerning him. And so we're going to be looking in two places today. We'll be both in Isaiah 7 and in Matthew 1. So if you want to keep kind of both of those ready, uh, that'd be good, because we're going to be kind of jumping back and forth. Last week... We looked um, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9 at the list of characteristics, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Um, and we noted last week that that was part of what's called the book of Emmanuel. Uh, the book of Emmanuel covers chapter 7 through 12 of Isaiah. It is a, uh, it's a holistic uh, response of Isaiah to the situation that Ahaz has gotten himself into. Uh, it's, a, it's called the Syro-Ephraimatic Conflict. Syria and Israel are attacking Judah. Ahaz is in uh, a tizzy. He's fearful. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to respond. Isaiah comes to him and says, God's got this. Don't worry about it. Um, in fact, if, if, you're, if you're shaking, if you're worried, if you're concerned at all, ask anything as high as heaven, as deep as shale, any sign you want, and God will give it to you just to confirm that this is uh, the truth, and Ahaz, with this false piety, as we so often do, we, we use our religion, we use our beliefs to really try and re remove us from an actual response to what God is calling us to. Uh, Ahaz says, no, I, I wouldn't dare test God. And Isaiah says, man, is it too much that you're wearing me out? Now you got to wear God out too, <laughs> okay? Uh, which I think is one of my favorite responses in all of uh, scriptures from the prophets. And he says, okay, therefore, because you won't ask for a sign, God's going to give you one anyway. And that's in Isaiah 7, and that really begins this, the prophecy uh, that unfolds over the next several chapters. And we read there in verse 14 that uh, this is what uh, God says to him. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, or behold, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Okay. Now when we think of that passage, when we, when we reflect upon that passage, we can't help but go to the nativity of Matthew 1. We can't help but go there, number one, because Matthew quotes that passage specifically in chapter 1 as it refers to Jesus' coming, to Jesus' birth. Um, you also have the whole use of the word virgin there and so forth that is highlighting the miraculous nature of Christ's coming. But we need, to, we need to first understand that Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz here. That's the first realization we have to have. Before we get to the fulfillment in Christ, we have to understand its fulfillment, its role right here in the Syro-Ephraimatic conflict. What's going on here? What, what is Isaiah trying to say here? 
He's trying to speak to Ahaz, and, and he's trying to give Ahaz a sign. Okay? Now, this is some 700 years before Jesus would be born. Okay? So, a sign 700 years later really isn't a sign to Ahaz. It's a sign to us. It's a bigger sign to humanity, but it's not a sign to Ahaz. So, we need to understand that there is someone, probably here, in Ahaz's context that this is referring to. Now, in the original context, in the original fulfillment, the emphasis is not so much on the virgin conception. That's going to be a heightened reality with Jesus. The emphasis is on the timing of the child. That the child's going to be born, the child's going to grow, the child is going to, before the child is old enough to be able to determine his own way, the two kings that are attacking um, Judah will both be gone. That's the sign. Okay? This child's going to be born. You're going to see him. He's going to start to grow. Before he's old enough to make a decision for himself, make his, determine his own way, the two kings that are attacking you are done. That's God's sign to you, Ahaz. That's the confirmation that God's clearly with you. God's deliverance is going to come quick. God's deliverance is going to be uh, thorough. God's deliverance is going to be all that you hoped it'd be. But as the prophecies continue and God continues to deal with Isaiah, continues to deal with the circumstances, situation, God reveals that this child is a forerunner of one who's coming who's greater. We talked about that last week. But I want to focus this week just on that promise because he says there what? He says, you'll name him Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? We all know what it means. What's it mean? God with us. Okay, whenever you see E-L on the end of an Old Testament name especially, God someplace in that name means. Okay, and so Emmanuel, God is with us. I want you to think, I want you to reflect for just a minute on the power of that statement. God with us. Because if there's one thing I think that that characterizes, that encapsulates what Christmas is really about. It's that God's with us. His presence is significant. It changes things. It transforms us. So let's look just a little bit at, at that concept of God with us. The first thing I think we see is that God with us is a miracle. It's a supernatural Event. A miracle is simply God moving in to the natural world and doing something that basically breaks the laws of nature. That's what supernatural means. It's above nature. And that's a miracle. Now, we live in a world today that has grown to um, dismiss the idea of the miraculous, to remove it from the realm of possibility. Even among Christians, uh, studies show that most Christians today don't believe that miracles still happen. Which is puzzling to me. Because I would venture to guess that Christians and non-Christians alike like to pray. I mean, isn't prayer something that we see, even in secular society, man, what, you just need to pray every once in a while. You need to do this, whatever. We like to pray. What is prayer? What is prayer? We think of prayer sometimes, I think, as kind of a, almost a, a meditation that, that's meant to just kind of help us talk through things and help us deal with that. I think that's what 
many people have determined prayer to be, but prayer is what? Prayer is a conversation with the living God. And it's doing what? It's asking that living God to come in and intervene in my life, to change something, to heal somebody who's hurting, to help somebody who's struggling, to deliver somebody who's lost, to, to, to give guidance to us in, in our own minds and in our own perspectives. What way should I go in life, God? What way would please you? What way lines up most with your will for who I am, for who you made me to be? Every prayer then is what? It's essentially asking for a miracle. Every single prayer we pray is asking God to supernaturally intervene in the natural order of things. Whether it's to teach us something, instruct us in something, change something, transform something. Every prayer is that. And so the miraculous is still very much a part of who we are as believers. It's very much a part of God's interaction with us. It's very much a sign, an expression of God's presence with us. That the transcendent God communicates to man, and he involves himself in the things of man. Now that idea that God is transcendent is, is kind of at the heart of the miraculous, and it's at the heart of, of what's going on here. Transcendent means what? It means above it all. Separated from. Christians, as Christians, we don't believe that God is a part of creation. We believe we can see some expressions of who he is here, just as with any artist, you look at their painting, you can see something of who they are in the painting they've created. Any sculptor, you can see something of who that sculptor is in the sculpting that they've accomplished. So we can see something of who God is in creation, but we don't believe that God is part of creation. Now, why is that important? That's important because we can't know him, therefore, unless what? He breaks into creation. We wouldn't know he was there unless he told us he was there. We might have some inclinations. We might have some thoughts. We might have some expectations, perhaps even. But we would not know he is actually there and what he is actually like unless he breaks into creation and reveals himself. And that's what Christmas is. That's what the nativity is. It's God breaking into creation. The incarnation is what it's called. God becoming man. Why? So that we would know who he is. Throughout the Old Testament, we have the laws, we have the expressions of his, his miraculous power and so forth, and we see many aspects of who he is there. But how does that play out in our life? How does that play out in our experience? Do we really have a, a good, solid example of how to respond to life from those stories? Oh, well, we have our heroes, David, Moses, Joshua. But what? All of them have some major failings, right? All of them have sin in their lives. Things that they do that warp their response to who God is in some way. So we really don't have a solid, unequivocal example until what? Until God himself becomes man and lives before us. It shows us 
what it means to be fully human. Dwell on that just a minute. God becoming man is what was necessary to show us what it means to really be human. We didn't know until that moment. Adam and Eve had experienced it. But since the fall, no person has experienced what it means to truly be fully, completely, totally human until Christ came. And he revealed that to us. He showed that to us. It's a miracle as well because the deliverance that is brought here that Isaiah predicts here is, is beyond expectations. All Ahaz wanted was what? Deliver me from these two kingdoms that are attacking. That's all I want, God. That's all I'm expecting. That's all I'm asking for. Just deliver me from these two kingdoms. And God says, you know what? I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to deliver you from these two kingdoms, and I'm going to deliver humanity from sin. That's so often how God works. The miraculous works in our life, in our experience. I can't tell you the number of times when, when I prayed for something, and God answered that prayer, and then what? Did me? far exceeding my own expectations. Paul talks about how he's abundantly able, more than we are able to comprehend, to deal with our situation, our circumstances. For Christmas, for some of you, it's a really hard time of year. Memories, painful memories come flooding back. Loneliness sets in. Everybody's trying to be holly jolly and merry, and you're just not feeling it. It just hurts. Take it to God. He is more than able to deal with your hurt, your loneliness, your sorrow, your grief. To answer and to respond to you in ways beyond your imagination. If God is willing to become man to deal with our deepest needs, how much more can we expect that he's able to deal with our everyday situations and circumstances? To have God with us is to realize a miracle. But God with us is also a correction. Here in this text, and in the context of the original prophecy, as I said, the, the whole nature of the prophecy begins there in verse 13. Is it, too, is it not enough for you to try my patience? Will you also try the patience of my God? That's a word of correction. Therefore, since you're trying my patience, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a sign. And that sign is, is an expression of judgment. As you go through the remainder of the sign, it says what? That this child that's born is going to eat curds and honey. 
basic staples of life. This answer that's coming, this Messiah that's coming, this King that's coming is not going to inherit a throne. He's not going to be born in a palace with wealth and riches and grandeur all around him. He's not going to be heralded by the city of Jerusalem as the next great king. There's not going to be any knowledge. There's not going to be psalms sung in his honor as he's born. He's not going to grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. And he's not going to go through the, the coronation ceremonies of the kings. He's going to be born in a manger, feeding trough. No one's even going to know what's happening except for the outsiders, the, the shepherds, and the magi. People that really didn't matter in their society, people who are from outside, they're the only ones who are even going to know he's there. He's going to grow up in obscurity in Nazareth, backwater village in the worst part of Israel, Galilee. Making chairs instead of sitting in thrones. Building things as a craftsman. And then he's going to start his ministry in the first year, nobody's even going to see he's what's going on. He's going to call these 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 rabble rousers, these 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 twelve individuals that no one in their right mind would choose to be his disciples. He's going to choose them: fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. He's going to put those in the same group, and people are only going to come to him for what he can do for them. But as soon as the trouble arises, as soon as the difficulties arise, they're going to scatter. And so he's going to take the word to, once again, outsiders, the, the woman at the well in Samaria, the woman caught in adultery. As we read earlier, he didn't come to heal the righteous, but the sick. Instead, and then instead of a royal crown that should have been placed on his head, he's going to get a crown of thorns. And he's going to get whipped. And he's going to die between two thieves. One of the most painful deaths ever devised by man. It's all predicted right here. Ahaz, your sinfulness has led to yeah, God with us. But that God-man is going to live a life of pain and agony and sorrow and grief. God with us is also a comfort. That sorrow and that grief that he suffered 
the temptations that he faced, I'll tell us what? We're not alone in our grief. We're not alone in our sorrow. When Lazarus died, Jesus' close friend, what did Jesus do? He wept. Knowing full well he was about to call that man out of that grave. He wept. Why? Because he knows what it means to lose someone. Most scholars are convinced that Joseph died somewhere in Jesus' youth. He knows what it means to lose a parent. He knows what it means to lose close friends. He knows what it means to be abandoned. He knows what it means to likely to be ridiculed. You don't think they had special names for this little boy who was born, who was obviously conceived out of wedlock? They're in that little town of Nazareth. He knows the grief you feel, not just in a in a God-like way, but in a very experiential, human way. What you're going through, he went through. What you're facing, he faced. What you're dealing with, he dealt with. And he comes to you today and he says, I'm with you. I'm right here. In your sorrow, in your grief, in your hurt, I'm with you. God with us is also a promise. It's a promise of deliverance from the sin of humanity, it's a promise of presence, as we just highlighted. And with that in mind, I want to just spend just a, a little bit of time going through through about six or seven passages that where God specifically says, I'm with you. Just to kind of highlight the, the comprehensiveness of what God is doing when he's with us. He uses the phrase in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. When David about to be anointed king. And he's reflecting upon the reality that he's a shepherd about to become king. Now, now think about that. Th think about the distinction between those two roles in their culture. A shepherd is an outcast. Most of the time they lived in a sta status of ritual uncleanness dealing with the animals, living out in, out in the fields, those sorts of things. It's a dangerous position. You have to protect your sheep from all sorts of wild animals. But you're really responsible to no one but yourself and your sheep. And now you're moving into the kingship, the monarchy. And you're responsible to all those people for their safety and their security. 
You're responsible for establishing the weights and measures that are used in your kingdom. You're responsible for collecting and, and planning and organizing how your government's going to work. You're responsible for taxation and how that's going to play out. You're responsible for uh, military alliances and, and all sorts of other agreements. I mean, there is a huge distinction. That's just, that's just a snapshot, but there's a huge distinction between these two positions. And David, understandably, is concerned, and God comes to him there in 1 Chronicles 17. He says, David, don't worry about it. I'm with you. God's response to David was, oh, you got all the skills you need. It wasn't, you're prepared for this. You know, you, you got straight A's in your math class, and, and you got straight A's in government and political science and those sorts of things. God's response wasn't, you're the man for the job because, man, you, you meet all the qualifications. God's response to David was, I am with you. And in your life, there are times, there are things you're facing that are bigger than you are. Whether it's it's sickness or or some new job, some new task, some new role, something that you're given. You know, you're you're gonna become a parent or uh, a grandparent, or you know, you're you're given a promotion at work, or some new situation at work arises that, that's placed on your shoulders, or or just life in general comes your way. The job is big. God is with you. In Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is what? He's taken over the, the leadership of Israel after Moses. Talk about a tough act to follow. Okay. And remember, Joshua was there the whole time. It's not like he came in late and just got in on the tail end of Moses' work. Joshua was there when the Red Sea parted. Joshua was there when God's talking to Moses from the mountaintop and, and Moses is responding. Joshua was there when the serpent started biting and Moses held up his hands and the serpents, you know, were no longer poisonous in that situation. People were healed. Joshua was there when Moses struck the stone and water came out. Joshua was there when, when the people spoke against Moses and the earth opened up and it swallowed those people who had spoken against Moses. Joshua was there through all of that. And now Moses is passed on and God says, Joshua, you're next in line. You're next up. And Joshua's thinking, how on earth do I follow that? And he's scared. How do I know he's scared? Because there in Joshua 1, the most common repeated refrain is what? Be strong and courageous. A sentence you only utter to someone who's scared. He had this, these big expectations, a lot to live up to. And God says, don't worry about it. I will be. Sometimes we go through life trying to live up to expectations of our parents, of others. We, we carry some, some weight that we got to prove ourselves in some way. God says, you don't have to prove yourself. I'm with you. I'm the one you need to lean on. I'm the one 
that's here that's going to make the difference. Haggai chapter 2. Israel is building their, their new temple after the exile. They've come back from Babylon. They've started building this temple. And they're, they're progressing. They're about a month into it. But they're starting to get depressed. And according to the text, the reason they're getting depressed is because these older people are sitting over on the edges watching the work take place. And they're saying, I remember the other temple and this doesn't measure up. I don't even know why y'all are trying. This doesn't even come close to measuring up to what Solomon's temple was like. That thing was beautiful. You remember that, Joe? Yeah, I remember that, Joe. You know? And, and they're just talking. And they're downplaying the new. And they're telling these younger folk, you're wasting your time because you're never going to do what we did. And Haggai steps in, himself an older person who had seen the previous temple. And he says, you know what, guys, you're right. I look at this temple. Doesn't measure up. It's nothing like the beauty of the previous one. But you know what? God is with us. And because God is with us, the glory of this temple is going to exceed the glory of that one. A lot of times in our life we look at things and, and we're just we're disappointed with the outcome. That didn't work out the way we thought. That didn't play out the way I had hoped it. God comes to us and he says, I can make beauty from ashes. I'm with you. And because I'm with you, if this is done in my name, to my glory, for my purposes, the glory of what you're doing here will far exceed what you expected it to be. Just place it in my hands. I'm with you. Isaiah 26, people there in the land of promise, and there's famine. This isn't what I expected. This isn't what I thought God's promises would mean. The events are not matching up to my beliefs. This is how I thought God would work, but God's working in a totally different way. Again, God doesn't come in and say, I'm going to change it, I'm going to transform it so it meets your expectations. God says, what? I am with you. So whatever the outcome is, whatever the event is, whatever the nature of the situation is, I'm here. I could go on and on. When the world opposes you, in Exodus 3, God said to Moses, just know I'm with you. When you failed God, Jeremiah 30, verse 11, as Israel had, God says, I'm with you. Matthew 28, 20. In every single part of your life, as you go, Jesus says, I am with you. God with us is a promise. It's a sustaining power. It's a transforming work. It's a redirected priorities. It's an encouragement to, to see things through the lens of how God would have us see it. 
God with us changes everything. Everything. And as such, God with us is grace. The wonder and the power of the statement is overwhelming if you think about it. Because God says, I am with you at the very moment, at the very point of rebellion. Ahaz has just rebelled against God and said, I don't want to rely on his promises. I don't want to count on his promises. I don't want to listen to his promises. I'm not interested in his promises. Leave me, Isaiah. I don't want to go the way you want me to go. I don't want to go the way God wants me to go. And God comes in and says, you know what, Ahaz? I am still with you. I'm with you. And this is our experience in a world of rebellion. God is with us. While we were still in rebellion, Christ died for us. As we think about Christmas, as we think about the realities of, of this time of year, if we're honest, we all belong on the naughty list. Every one of us. Because all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled. And God says, I love you still. I'm with you still. Let's make all things new. I make all things new. As we come to our time of invitation, where do you stand in regard to God with us? Do you understand? Do you recognize His offer? life and hope. He came so that we may have life and have it what? More abundantly. I love that. It doesn't even say just abundantly. It's more abundantly. He's just piling it on. That's our God. But he doesn't force that on anybody. He extends his hand in invitation. His nail-scarred hands and invitation it says, Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, overwhelmed by life, and I will give you rest. I believe that invitation is not just for salvation. I think that's obviously a huge part of it. But I think it's for those of us who are His. Because sometimes as Christians, we forget the power that he's promised, the presence that he's promised. And we need that rest. And he's offering it to us if we'll but respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come, God, I pray that, Lord, through my inadequacy, proclaim the truth this morning that you have spoken clearly, powerfully, directly to hearts and minds here this morning.
Lord, that you would help us to to be responsive to, to what you've shown us, to what you've called us to, whether it's to surrender our lives for the first time or to find the rest in you that, that can only be found in you, whether it's the correction that we need at this moment or the comforts. God, help us to surrender to what you're directing us to, the, what you're calling us to, and, and to live lives that are truly mindful of your presence with us. Lord, use this time for your glory, for your kingdom, for your purposes. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.